Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Undermining collective bargaining rights is bad business. And in a year of inflation and volatility, Premier Ford has injected even more economic uncertainty into every single unionized sector. What are the implications? Well, we'll talk about that. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, joins us to discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics. And we cover all things in the midterm elections, the very important midterm elections south of the border. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Circle back here to uh, Ontario and what we heard about 24 hours ago, and that being uh, the announcement from uh, Premier Doug Ford that uh, if QP came back to the bargaining table and canceled their walkout, their strike, uh, that he would rescind the uh, the back-to-work order and the uh, notwithstanding clause. And uh, that's apparently what the deal was made yesterday. And uh, there's, a, a, I think, some some misinformation that's out there right now. It's, uh, some people that are just not quite sure what this all means. Uh, I, I, it's not quite time now for the uh, the folks at QP to be doing a happy dance here. I mean, they, they, they got what they wanted by getting the notwithstanding and the back to order, work order canceled, but they still don't have a contract. Um, is uh, not just what the government did, but the process uh, that they followed to do this. And an awful lot of people thought that this is basically a slap in the face to the uh, collective bargaining process of the rights of collective bargaining, which have been enshrined in, uh, in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights for quite some time. Uh, Jen Hassel, Executive Director of the Broadband Institute, has written an interesting op-ed piece about this and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jen, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me, Bill. And I apologize ahead of time if we have to interrupt you uh, when the Premier steps to the podium. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, about your piece and, and, and what this has done. Uh, and it's not just that this is management labor. Uh, that, that's an important element, an important part of this whole process. Uh, but there's a whole idea about the message this government is sending to union and organized labor when they pull a, a, a stunt such as they did by, you know, trying to inject the notwithstanding clause into this. Maybe explain that to our listeners. Sure. I mean, um, just just as, as you've outlined, the notwithstanding clause would have taken away everybody, not just these these workers, these education workers, but everybody's right to be able to join a union, collectively bargain and, and go on a strike. Um, but let me just sort of bring it back to a meat and potatoes kind of thing of like, why why did uh, the public polling show that 70% of Ontarians were behind these workers in this fight and why it was why there was so much emotion and and support for this is because, you know, I don't need to tell I don't need to tell you we're in a crisis, we're in a cost of living crisis with inflation, with wages that have been frozen or um, just increasing by a little by a very little amount while our rents and our mortgages are just climbing and the cost of groceries are climbing and so we're in this economic crisis and if you can imagine if you can imagine um, the government doing this to some of the poorest public sector workers people only make thirty nine thousand a year who are just asking for you know to still be in poverty that's what they're asking for they're asking to still live under the um the, the living wage. They're not asking to be rich. They're still asking to be poor, but just asking for a marginal pay increase and to be have their rights stripped of them. It was like he was showing, giving an example to everybody that um, that the government was ready to strip away the power of unions. And frankly, in this economic turmoil, we really need a middle class. And it's unions who are the defenders of the middle class. And if they don't have the tools by which to, ha- to make sure that people can earn a decent living, 
it was everybody was under attack everybody and i think that's that's the sort of nature of of you know the the legalese of it but also the emotions and and how people were feeling why does it always have to be us versus them i mean labor versus union it's it's a confrontational relationship and as you point out in the piece it's not like that everywhere else that's right um so uh, it it isn't, and it, it isn't hasn't always been like this in Canada either. Our entire industrial relations system was created after the war, and it's called the post-war compromise. And then no, it's because before the post-war compromise, um, there wasn't the same kind of uh, ease by which to recognize a union, and it meant that people would go on illegal strikes or wildcat strikes all the time in Canada, all the time. And uh, and that's why we created this structure to create more compromise. And there, it, it benefits the economy, as I said in the piece in the Ottawa Citizen, because employers have some predictability, people have some predictability. And of course, it's also good for people to have living wages because then that, recirc- that money is then spent and recirculated in the economy. When money is spent and circulates in the economy, business then, businesses then profit then they can invest in innovating and and retooling and further grow their product. And this is the model that we see in uh, in Scandinavia, in Germany. Um, And in fact, it's this sort of um, collaboration and compromise is such that workers often sit on the boards of directors of some of these the largest companies in these in these countries, because there's this notion of we have a strong economy because we include workers voices at the table. And it leads to this kind of culture of reinvestment, innovation, and growth. Well, you mentioned Germany as an example where that's been happening for quite some time. Uh, and if, if the, by definition, the people around a board table are supposed to be the major stakeholders, wouldn't labor be part of that just by definition? <laughs> right? <laughs> and this isn't, this isn't a radical idea. I also mentioned in my paper, Aaron O'Toole, the former conservative leader, he actually put this forward as one, as one of his election promises in the federal election. It's not a, it's not a radical idea to have have workers have a say on on the on the company. And this works really well because frankly, people want to keep their jobs. They want to see the companies they work for do well. Uh, and so that's really why it would be such an added bonus to have workers at like have um some representation on boards of directors but as it stands right now there are people who sit uh, on boards of directors whose interests are in the shareholders and so what that means is they are advocating for increased dividends to investors and if you are paying out increased dividends to investors it means that you are not innovating you are not retooling and you are not investing in the growth and the long-term sustainability of your organization this is the like very wild time that we live in in sort of late capitalism where it's not that sort of easy well everyone wants to see a business grow and thrive and if they're profitable profitable it means that there's going to be long-term growth and sustainability of of the company no we're in this like vulture capitalism model where people aren't necessarily thinking about or invested in the long-term growth of of any any organization so in other words, there's an attitude in, in some organizations, and I'm not suggesting it's going on in all of them by any stretch, that, yeah. uh, you know, there's a profit, okay, let's grab it, because there may not be one next year, as opposed to Absolutely. thinking, if, you know, if, if we reinvest, including, by the way, in our labor force, uh, there's a chance for long-term profits here, long-term viability. And and you're right, there are examples where that's happened. I know of boards of directors that include labor representatives on the board, 
And it's not to say, hey, what about us? What about us? It's to understand that they're part of the stakeholders. And they're, if there has been any success, they're a part of that. And if there are any challenges, uh, they need input into the solutions. There you go. Absolutely. It, it just makes all kinds of sense, uh, it, it, which is why I, I get frustrated when I see circumstances like this, where they always, and, and I understand what's going on here, because this is not the first government, nor will it be the last, uh, not just conservatives, but others have done this too, uh, where they have to paint the other side as the opposition, as the bad guys who are trying to rip us off and, you know, they're trying to make money for themselves and they don't care about the, you know, the government. And it, it's, it's, it becomes such a, a, a problematic circumstance right now that, that it's almost a, a system that we know is going to fail because it's built that way. That's right. And that's why I wrote the op-ed that I did, which is, it, it was specifically to the business and corporate class in Canada of, is this what you really want? Do you really want to damage the post-war compromise industrial relations system that we have here in Canada today? Do you really want to break it? by using the notwithstanding clause and force workers and, and unions into the position where um, the only tool that they have is in a legal strike that I like that will create chaos. It will create um, a lot of economic loss. It will, of course, have our value set around a loss of trust and things like that. But it really would would wreck so much, so much economic growth and um, and and sort of businesses don't want to deal with that kind of chaos. And that's why we need to reflect. I think people need to reflect, take a step back and think about, well, you know, what's good for the Canadian economy? What do you anticipate you're going to see here now? I mean, you know, the, the, OK, the, the workers are back today. This, we're told negotiations are going to resume. Uh, but there's still a wide gap here between what the government's offering and what the union would like to see in circumstances like that. Uh, no, there was a mediator that was, that was involved in this that didn't seem to have much success. Uh, does this little shock that everybody's gone through right now motivate people to say, okay, let's try to find a solution? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think they're sharpening the pencil and and looking where uh, where they can can meet eye to eye. I don't think that either side here was interested in shutting down the Canadian economy for a day or two. Um, but uh, that's like, that's where this was headed. That's absolutely where this was headed was, um, as somebody said in the press conference yesterday, the Ford government tried to use a sledgehammer uh, in order to push a, a, a pin in. And that's not, that's not necessary. And, and when you're faced with that kind of, you know, when you're painted into that kind of corner, these, these workers and, and unions were creating the conditions by which the only means they had to fight back were to create um, this kind of this kind of illegal strike as well as start to consider, well, what will it take to put on a general strike because this affects us all. Um, and, and so that is so, that is such a you know big disruptive um, action that I think that both sides are at that table saying like, okay, Let's let's figure out where we can compromise, and I really do believe that. So I'm I'm optimistic that they're going to be able to see eye to eye and come out with a deal, uh, and um, you know I'm I'm really hopeful about that. Well, I wonder if that was one of the key elements in the government deciding to to reconsider uh, their position. <laughs> it's it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, we'll go to war with this union, uh, this local, uh, but you know when all of a sudden. And even when the teachers' unions, the elementary school teachers and the secondary school teachers uh, went in, in sympathy, that's, oh, sure, well, we expected that to happen. Uh, but when Unifor and uh, Leuna, who were big supporters of the Ford government in the last election, uh, say that they're opposed to this, and then, as you say, there was even talk about a general strike across the province, 
Uh, you got to think that somebody around the, the cabinet table or in the Ford government would simply say, boy, we opened a Pandora's box here. A hundred percent. And um, look, it, there's also some public um, public polling that was released uh, recently from uh, Abacus Data. And they're not yeah. necessarily a progressive polling firm by any stretch. And they were tracking that huge, tremendous public support, even amongst conservative voters, for these education workers who just make 39000 a year. And so they were quickly, quickly losing their base. Doug Ford likes to say that he's on the side of the little guy. And here he is taking a sledgehammer to some of the poorest workers, the ones who work with our kids in school, the extra set of hands in kindergarten, the extra set of hands dealing with um, autistic kids, special needs kids. I mean, there is so much sympathy that people, that regular people have for this group of, of workers. And I think, you know, when you sit back and you think how brave they are, there are 55,000 uh, education workers that are low-waged and who just said, enough is enough. Like, I, I, need, I need a little bit more each and every month in order to pay my bills. And, you know, how brave it was on that Friday when they were threatened by the government that if they were going to use their right to strike and be fined $4,000, that was a threat that was made to them, that each and every one of them would have to pay four grand if they participated in an illegal strike on Friday. And those 55,000 said, we're going to do it. And they walked off the job and they sort of showed us all that, you know what, we're not in, we're not going to take this crap anymore. We're going to like, you know, really put forward what we need in order to live, in order to live a decent life. Well, the next chapter is, uh, I guess, going to start this morning when the Premier addresses us. He's still running late, as per usual, I guess. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for writing the piece, first of all. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Jen Hassam, Executive Director of the Broadband Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is the bromance between uh, the Prime Minister and the Ontario Premier over? Uh, th- there seems to be a little friction there. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is free to reopen talks with the provinces about the notwithstanding clause and the Constitution, though he'd recommend against it. Uh, Ford was criticized, of course, preemptively for invoking the clause in the legislature that imposed new contract and uh, restrictions, of course, and the Prime Minister was pretty vocal about it. He says now is not the time to reopen the Constitution. If uh, premiers across the country uh, want to avoid the kind of disruption that we've seen uh, in Ontario over these past few days, the answer is simple. Just don't use the notwithstanding cause proactively. So that's his take on that. The Premier, of course, takes exception to this. Uh, and it's an it's important element here because this is not an isolated incident. There seem to be some other examples here that maybe there's some cracks in the, uh, well, some would suggest tenuous relationship between the two of them. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thank you for jumping in again today. This is uh, a lot going on in Ottawa these days, uh, over and above the uh, uh, the inquiry, of course, into the Emergencies Act, including the relationship, although this is all seemingly tied together. Uh, when Doug Ford first got elected, as you and I discussed at the time, there was a, a pretty acrimonious relationship. He was a conservative, he, he, Trudeau was a liberal, and he accused Justin Trudeau and the liberals for just about everything that was wrong in Ontario. Uh, COVID seemed to bring a different attitude to, to both men, and they, their sense of cooperation, if not respect and admiration, uh, but there's some cracks here. I mean, you know, the prime minister criticizing uh, the, the Ontario premier in that phone call that he had with Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, saying he was asleep at the wheel. 
or missing an action. I forget which phrase it was. I mean, the intent was still there. And now uh, uh, chiding the premier for uh, invoking the notwithstanding clause in situations like this. Is, is the friendship over here? Well, I mean, I think in politics, we can expect this sort of thing to, to happen. It's going to ebb and flow. And especially given the fact that um, Doug Ford is the premier of the largest province in the country, he's, um, you know, he's just coming into his second uh, term as a majority premier, the prime minister, and I think Doug Ford have in some ways, they have a lot in common in the sense that they both have this huge brand that they bring to politics. Neither of them is defined by their party. To the contrary, their shadows seem to loom larger than the parties that they lead. And so I think for them, they're, what they bring to the table in terms of their personalities, in terms of what they want to put out there as their image, their brand, that's going to be very, very present between these two. And they're going to, they're going to tangle from time to time. Now, I think the other thing, too, is uh, the COVID-19 period was particularly peaceful for politics. And that was a more general thing. That wasn't just Ford and Trudeau. There was a general sense that you didn't see the adversarialism in politics than you, that you normally would, even in the House of Commons. You saw cooperation among uh, the governing and the opposition parties to get bills passed and to get things done. And so it was a bit of an unusual time. I think that was always going to unravel. That was always going to come to a, to a close and you'd see a bit more politics as usual. I think in this case, though, the use of the the potential use of the notwithstanding clause, the types of things that they're arguing about, and Doug Ford's assertion that hey, it's okay when Quebec does it, but it's not okay when we do it, is a bit of a of a meaningful shot, I think, at the prime minister around how he's handling intergovernmental relations. And, and there's another element to that too, because I know that's the way that uh, uh, the premier has phrased this. But I, I, the criticism about Trudeau about uh, the Quebec circumstances, not so much that he endorsed the fact that Legault used it, he he just doesn't do anything about it. Although he was pretty vocal about the premier, so I can understand why Ford be a little ticked about that. I do too. And, you know, I mean, there's there's lots happening there and different provinces are going to have different things that they may want to dig in about. I was listening to the premier's press conference this morning. I, I listened to the one yesterday as well. But this morning when he was talking about the use of the notwithstanding clause and, you know, he's happy if he doesn't have to use it. He wants people to sit down at the table, come up with a deal. And none of this stuff around the legislation or the notwithstanding clause will be necessary. But the way he describes the notwithstanding clause is, is as a tool. You know, he, he denies any any comparison to a sledgehammer. He says it's a tool that he has, just like striking is a tool that the union has. has. And so the way he's trying to normalize the use of something that is present in the Constitution and, you know, legal in that way, but I think was intended as a very, you know, very much as a last resort if this is a sort of break the glass before using kind of thing. And he's throwing it out on the table as though it's just kind of a normal tool at his disposal. And I think the question that we need to, to answer and, and what we need to talk about a bit more is, is whether people agree with him. I think that it's possible that his argument around the use of the notwithstanding clause is actually resonating with people. A lot of people aren't going to care what the notwithstanding clause is at all. They just want to know if their kids are going to school, which is completely fair. But this sort of movement toward using tools or resources or political um, you know, mechanisms to achieve an outcome as though this isn't a major thing is it's, it's an interesting conversation to the extent that this could become a normalized part of politics. Well, and I guess what frustrates an awful lot of people, and I can say their point, 
is I remember the debate about you know the the constitutional talks that were going on at the time and 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 this notwithstanding clause was basically supposed to be a peace offering to Quebec not so much to some of the other provinces although not everybody else was ready, was ready to sign on to basically say okay if you really want to protect your culture and you think there's something going on here that's going to wipe out and eradicate the, the French culture or the French language you yeah. can invoke this okay and okay fine we we got this going but that's not what it's being used for and that's not even what Legault has used it for in the past it's basically to put a force field around a piece of legislation that's controversial. I, I agree with that analysis 100%. I think you're absolutely right when um, we talk about how this came into being historically. This was something that, you know, I think it was the prime minister's father was was not terribly keen to put in the Constitution no. at all. But it was meant to be there. And I think you're, you're right to appease the concerns, particularly of Quebec, but of provinces who were concerned that the federal government would use the charter and would use the patriation of the constitution more broadly as a mechanism to nationalize at the expense of provincial autonomy. It was very much a back and forth in a power relationship between the provinces and the federal government at a time where Quebec nationalism was extremely, you know, revved up and had been for decades. And there was, this was at a particular point in time. Does that mean that the notwithstanding clause is not a legitimate constitutional piece to use now? No, not necessarily. But as you say, right, like it now it, it's, it's a piece that people are using as part of policy debates as part of collective bargaining conversations, which is absolutely not what it was intended for. And so then the question becomes, is this something that people want to normalize as part of politics? If the government says, well, look, you know, like it seems to me that Doug Ford has done something either. I, I don't know if this is something that's totally frightening or totally like clever as heck and or maybe both at once. But he seems to me, to me that he's driven a wedge between the right to collective bargain and the right to strike. And he's saying, if you want to sit at the t table, I'm cool with that. I'm not going to force a contract on you. We're going to talk. We'll talk as long as you want. You go out and strike, I am going to press the nuclear button. I'm not, I'm not okay with that. And so he's creating, you know, he's like a line around, he, he's taking direct issue with the right of education workers to strike. And that's, I think, what this is all about, which is why I think he's getting exactly what he wanted. And uh, your your point about you know do we want to normalize this? I I, I would take that a step further, and I said maybe it's already normalized. I mean, because other premiers yeah. have threatened to use this too. I mean, once the genie's out of the bottle, and it's out of the bottle for sure, uh, how can you put it back in? I mean, that they, they all look at this. I mean, Jason Kennedy threatened. Uh, you know, Premier Mo threatened to use this at, at one point when some of the negotiations. So they they look at this right now as a weapon against the federal government. Oh, exactly. And, you know, as we're having this conversation, um, another thing, it's a big day in politics because of the U.S. midterms, but also Danielle Smith is running in her by-election today in Alberta to get into the legislature. And as you say, this, this the normalization, I think, is happening because it's not only is, is Quebec uh, had opportunity to use this, this piece in the Constitution, but also Danielle Smith is talking about doing all sorts of things. And today is a big day for her in terms of cementing her lead in the party and being able to, to affect the conversations that are having happening in the legislature she's going to you know if if her by-election goes her way she's going to be taking her seat in the house as the premier of the province and then i think she's watching what's going on in ontario she's watching what's going on in quebec and we know that the provinces are going to want to leverage the independence of one in order to further their own case and I understand, you know, there's a provincial sovereignty issue here, and 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 every premier, of course, will, will validate that and say, yeah, we we need to protect our our unique opportunities in PEI or Ontario or BC, whatever it is. 
Uh, but they all seem in some way anyway, Laurie, to, to want to establish some sort of a relationship uh, with the federal government and especially with the prime minister, uh, as acrimonious as it might be in some situations. I don't get the sense that Danielle Smith's even looking at that as a goal. She's just basically saying, leave us alone, let us do whatever the hell we want. But when we want money, uh, you know, cut the check. Yeah, we'll call. We want to be at the meetings where there's going to be checks handed out. But uh, other than that, we'd like to pass some legislation that says if we don't want to do what the feds are doing, we don't have to. And yeah. so, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens when she becomes more of a voice around the table. I don't know how long that will last. Right now, the polls are looking pretty good for Rachel Notley. But it seems like at this point, Danielle Smith is going to have at least a chunk of time, the better part of a year, where she will be representing the province, you know, as as that that representative that premier who's going to be at the table in those conversations with the federal government and this is at a time of course when like this week the meetings are happening in british columbia where the the provinces are looking for a much bigger role financially for the federal government in healthcare. and so all of these issues kind of play off one another there's no vacuums here right like the conversations that are happening about healthcare, the conversations that are happening about provincial sovereignty the conversations that are happening about the notwithstanding clause and collective bargaining they're all pieces of the same puzzle because it's all about the power balance between the two orders of government and, and those lines uh, which uh, the province yeah. would like to draw and the federal government is 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 basically suggesting that well we're going to be the bad guy in this whole situation it's a, it's an interesting dynamic that's going on here which is why it was so uh, I, I think important uh, for Ford and Trudeau to establish some sort of a relationship I mean as you say the the biggest province uh, the, the the heart of manufacturing in this in this country uh, you can't have an antagonistic relationship because it's not going to help either province nor the federal government in situations like that. But it, I guess it's, as as they say with the relationship experts, Laurie, you got to work it or it's not going to be there for you. Well, that's it. Exactly. And I mean, I think going back to your point about COVID, it's possible that some goodwill was was worked on over the years, not only between Ford and Trudeau, but also Tru- um, Ford and Freeland. And so maybe, you know, it's it's okay every now and again to have a little bit of jostling back and forth. I think there's an argument to be made that sometimes um, the provinces have something to gain by not necessarily getting too close to the feds, but, you know, some sort of, of, of arrangement where they're still able to kind of press for what they want. And the federal government is kind of used to being the bad guy and they might not care about that. This is also um, against the backdrop of the fiscal update last week. This is a time where the federal government government is trying to switch gears financially, show a little bit more restraint, uh, get people used to the idea that they're not going to be cutting checks all the time. And that includes the provinces, getting them to understand that, you know, regardless of the amount, number of meetings they have, the federal government is not keen to give a bunch more money if they're not going to put strings on it. And so we're seeing them try to shift the balance. That's going to cause some aches and pains, and it's going to cause some, t- some tension, some friction, and that's fine. But I think there's only so, you know, to, to use a relationship analogy, there's only so much of that you, you can take before it just starts to become bad will. Um, people are throwing things out, feeling like they have nothing to lose. And then it's hard to repair from that. Uh, very quickly, I got about a minute or so left here. And I wanted to get your uh, your read on, on Christy Freeland's comments. You mentioned about the economic statement last week. And uh, it's, it's important for governments when people are going through hard times to, to say, I feel your pain. You know, we're all going through this together. Uh, her uh, interview with uh, with global news where she said look we've even had to cancel our disney plus uh, contract you know i mean we, we're suffering here uh oh boy. not the sort of message you want to get across when people are looking to put food on the table that's it and i mean i yeah i saw i saw that too and it's it is a i think at this point 
people are looking at her fiscal update. I don't think people were li- were listening to that with the, this the anticipation that anything really great was going to come out of it. I think people anticipated a pretty uh, you know tight fisted control kind of approach to money at this point. But yes, it's when politicians say things like that, especially at a time where people are really feeling the crunch. It's just irritating, and it you know it leaves people the impression that my God, you really don't get it, do you? And it's I think to be perfectly honest, and I, I don't mean to to point fingers here, I think that it's something that she struggles with as a politician quite a bit, is to get over um, to you know c- to kind of connect with people in the sense that she understands what they're going through, and so she then ends up you know rather than talking about her fiscal update and talking about her her approach to foreign policy and Canada's place in the world, now she's talking to the media about how she's privileged, and that's not where a politician wants to be. Absolutely, Laurie, great to have you back on the program today. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dr. Lori Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University with an eye on what's going on with federal politics. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a big day. November the 8th, of course, is uh, midterm election day south of the border. We've been talking about this for months, I guess really for years, ever since Joe Biden got elected two years ago, uh, because the implications of what happens tonight could have a significant impact, not just on the U.S. political system, the global system, and certainly Canada-U.S. relations, uh, depending on who controls uh, the Senate and the uh, Congress. Uh, so we're watching with great interest, and uh, so pleased to welcome Reggie Cicchini back to the program. Reggie is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol, uh, who's been tracking this story, of course, for many, many months. Uh, Reggie, the, the, I, I, it's easy to fall into political hyperbole here and say this is you know, one of the most important elections of all time. Uh, I, I don't want to start rating them, but I mean, the, the consequences of what happens with the vote tonight are, are going to be long lasting and, and, and could actually change the course of the United States and, and their approach, not just to a local politics and, and internal politics, but global politics as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is the kind of election that, especially when it comes to a midterm, so few people typically actually pay attention uh, to an off-season election that's not a general. But because the the landscape has shifted so much around this country since Roe v. Wade was overturned with the economy uh, kind of in tatters, uh, Republicans and Democrats have really been crying, saying, look, things are changing in this country and we need to be able to keep up with those changes. And you're right. Whatever happens tonight could potentially not just have an immediate impact could have a very long-term impact, especially if the president's agenda is held up by any kind of Republican majority, whether it's in the House or in the House and the Senate. That really is going to make it that much more difficult for uh, the president to be able to do the things that he and his Democratic Party wanted to do. But it also will provide Republicans an opportunity to say, look, over the next two years, we promise this is what we're going to do. Here's why you need to keep us in power. Well, you mentioned Roe versus Wade, and I, I, I don't know how much of a key issue that's going to be once people actually go to the ballot box. But the reason that's even in, in dispute, of course, is because uh, the Republicans control the Senate. When Mitch McConnell blocked Barack Obama's attempt to replace the Supreme Court justice, and, and essentially, if, if they regain control of, of, of the Senate once again, McConnell will be the Senate leader there. Uh, and any any consequential stuff with the Supreme Court, of course, is going to be blocked by him. I mean, you know, we, we're heading towards a stalemate situation here, aren't we? Absolutely, we are. And I think that that's why this midterm is actually playing a little bit more uh, in in kind of the reality of the situation, because if we find Washington uh, logjammed with a split government, either, you know, a, a Republican House and a Democratic Senate or Republican both and a Democratic White House, that's going to put more emphasis on state level uh, elections, including uh, those governorships and what happens in uh, states, whether it's a bicameral legislature or not, because if the federal government's not doing things, we are going to see states continue 
continue to act, and we've already seen over the last couple of months, states working in their own capacity to try and, you know, restrict things like access to uh, an abortion. So even without a federal mandate in place, these state elections are really also going to kind of shape the political landscape across this country in the very near future. Well, and again, as you've talked about during the last general election two years ago, uh, these it, it's, it's almost a misnomer to call the U.S. a general election. It's really 50 state elections because they control everything uh, to elect, a, 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 as you say, a, a government for Washington. So they control those legislatures. Uh, they control how to, the rulemakers. And that's we saw how that can go sideways pretty quickly if you got, you got the wrong people in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, state level elections are going to be huge, especially because at the end of the day, once we make our way into 2024, during the next presidential election, if there happened to be some kind of a, a split vote when it came to counting the electoral votes, at the end of the day, that bounces back and the state legislatures, the 50 individual states would be the one to cast a ballot. And right now there are more Republican led states then there are Democratic-led states. So if there are more red governors that are put in place, that can ultimately have an impact uh, on what happens in 2024. So again, for a midterm election, uh, you know, the first election after January 6th, the first election after we've seen uh, uh, things take place, uh, you know, going after either democracy or going after women's uh, reproductive rights or going after uh, the economy, this is one of those elections where lawmakers say there's a lot at stake. There actually is. Well, and we, we could talk about some of those decisions at the state level. I mean, we've talked, you know, we know Roe v. Wade, of course, was already dealt with by the court, uh, much to the chagrin of the overwhelming majority of the population. Uh, but they're talking about uh, a number of different things, too, like, uh, you know, same-sex marriage and things like this could well be on the docket because there are some candidates in some of those runnings that are, that are actually saying, let's, with, let's, let's open the book up and talk about a number of things here. So we don't know. Uh, just what the ramifications are going to be uh, once that happens, and 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 of course the approaches they're going to take. I, I want to, Reggie, focus if I could, but on Congress for a second. Again, some, with some of the reporting you suggested, so it said that, and of course, it's nothing's you know guaranteed until we count the numbers. Uh, but the the Republicans could possibly take control of both uh, the Senate and the Congress, which would put Kevin McCarthy as the Republican leader there. Uh, he's already gone on record as simply saying, "Look, if I if we get regain control." Uh, first of all, the January 6th hearing, you can wipe that out. That's not going to happen again. But it's basically, it's going to be payback time. He's talked about opening a number of investigations about Biden and a number of different uh, Democratic officials within that administration. Uh, the corruption things, the accusations about corruption. Uh, we could be going in a whole different direction here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the cat is out of the bag. If Republicans win, uh, they are ultimately going to spend two years uh, using the powerful House Oversight Committee and their investigative powers to go after issues that they've been grieving for the last two years. And whether that has to do, uh, you know, with the 2020 election in that they want to investigate the investigators or whether they want to look at Dr. Fauci or they've said that they may look into the origins uh, of COVID, even though the handling of that obviously fell under the former president, they will try to find failures and falters that took place under the Biden administration. They will go after members of the Biden family. They may open up an investigation into uh, into Hillary Clinton or the Clinton family. So the Republicans have already said, look, we are going to spend time investigating what we have seen as problems across this country. What does that mean? It means that more time is spent investigating than legislating. Democrats are mildly hopeful that that could potentially lead to, you know, quote unquote, burning the House down and they'll spend two years not actually doing anything, potentially flipping votes back to the Democrats two years from now. But now that we know Republicans intend to go after 
the Biden administration, which could do up to and including an impeachment bill. This is going to be a non-legislative, but highly investigative, at least next two years. Well, and that was one of the stories that jumped out at me. You know, the, the question was being raised, how many times are we going to impeach Joe Biden? Uh, almost as if, well, they, you know, they did it twice to Trump, so we've got to do it twice to Biden. This is, as opposed to looking at the agenda and the economy and, and a number of other very, very important issues here, Reggie, when you listen to McCarthy and, and some of the other people that are, are just grasping and salivating at the uh, idea of getting power again, uh, they're looking at the next two years as payback time. Absolutely, they are. And look, there could be significant fallout from that because we've already heard, you know, on top of the investigations, they may do things like pull back on funding uh, for Ukraine, which could obviously have you know, an impact not only in Ukraine, but across uh, NATO as a whole, which could lead to additional countries, including Canada, have to uh, beef up their contributions. But this is sounding like it is payback. And remember, to impeach a president, they need to be, uh, you know, brought up on charges of high crimes and misdemeanors, which is a very vague terminology and really can can result in anything. Look, Donald Trump was impeached, high crimes and misdemeanors. One of them had to do with his phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The other one had to do with inciting an insurrection to completely different things. So it, it you know, it, it's not hard to see Republicans trying to make their own definitions up for what they believe high crimes and misdemeanors are, and whether that's about the economy, whether that's about personal issues in the Biden's life, we've heard Republicans say, and we've already had Republicans on the record, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, try to already impeach the president. This is simply going to be a, we're in charge, we're going to get you, and that might be how it goes for the next, you know, for the next little while. Reggie, we were talking earlier in the program about uh, foreign influences and, and the Chinese government, of course, which is uh, doing their best to try to infiltrate the Canadian political system, as they are the American system. But there was a, a tweet uh, that, that we saw, I guess it was yesterday, uh, from one of the high-profile Russian oligarchs that said, uh, basically, I'll paraphrase it, of course we're going to spend money to influence the U.S. election this week. We've been doing it for years now, and we've had great success with it. Uh, they're not they're not they're being very open about it right now that they try to influence it especially as you said when it comes to policies towards ukraine and the war and supplying munitions uh, for that i mean there's been a concerted effort by russians uh sub sadly uh substantiated by a number of the folks like on fox news and others that seem to be saying the russians are the good guys in this conflict uh and and some of those people are going to get elected tonight yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there there has been, you know, concerns over election meddling, whether it's from Russia or from China or from Iran uh, for years now. Uh, and obviously that kind of took center stage during the 2016 election uh, as there attempted to be investigations to find out if there were connections between the then Trump campaign and what was taking place in Russia. And here we are again now uh, after indictments had already been made against this person for efforts to uh, influence the election. Now, just openly saying, yeah, absolutely, we are going to try to do this. And again, what does that do? It puts election integrity on the line. The issue it becomes for Republicans is that Republicans have been crying that elections have already been kind of whittled away and that they're unfair and unsafe. But at the same time, they haven't really been pushing back on the foreign influence. They think that this is all uh, kind of a domestic crisis. Uh, and now the fact that you know Russia has come out to say, look, we are actively trying to get in the way. If Republicans lose, do they blame this on foreign influence? If Republicans lose, do they blame this on just a rigged election system? I think that this could be a, a storyline that goes much further out than just this midterm election, because if Russia is openly admitting it now, how long before, you know, there are others that simply say, yes, our goal going forward, not just in the United States, is to simply destabilize global democracy when you have so many Republicans who are already on the record, including candidates today saying, who cares about democracy? 
a lot of close races. We, we can talk about Georgia and Ohio and a number of others. You've been reporting on those for the last couple of weeks. And, and again, the mantra from some Republicans is, uh, you know, it, it's a rigged election unless we win. You know, we will not accept uh, the results if we do not win. Uh, and uh, I, I want to turn that around to the to, to the guy who perpetrated that mindset, of course, uh, Donald Trump, who is still lurking, uh, not so much in the background. He's been very vocal and very much on the campaign trail uh, for people like Herschel Walker and, and Dr. Oz and others. The announcement he made yesterday that has a very, very important uh, announcement to make next week. If the Republicans do win tonight, and if they even win you know, substantially, Reggie, is that the springboard that Trump needs to announce his candidacy? Possibly. I mean, look, last week it was very, very, very probably. Last night it was an announcement to make an announcement. So when this announcement does finally come, uh, it's going to come out after there has been, uh, you know, some form of determination on whether Republicans have full control, some control or have, you know, have have lost the ability to, to have any kind of control. And that is going to uh, work for Donald Trump. If Republicans have a good night tonight, if they at least take back the House, especially the people who Donald Trump kind of played kingmaker and put in place, that is going to allow for him to say, look at what I've done for this Republican Party. I gave you back the House. I gave you an ability to investigate Joe Biden and to cut off funding to Ukraine and to be able to uh, put things like tax cuts for you know, you know what will likely be the richer part of America. But they'll be able to say that there were tax cuts. That's going to be a big deal for Donald Trump. And it could line up some more of the base behind him, it could also start to, you know, intensify the fight or the battle between him and Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence for what ultimately might play out uh, in 2024. But if Republicans don't do as well tonight, this could, you know, kind of further that bit of lukewarmness that's existed within the Republican Party, where there is some, you know, fear and trepidation as to whether they want Donald Trump on the top of the ticket. So he's banking on a strong performance by Republicans tonight to be that strong push he needs whenever this announcement comes. Anything less than that, we'll have to see how Donald Trump's going to spin that. Well, you mentioned uh, DeSantis, uh, the Florida governor, of course, who's been running all over the place. And uh, clearly these two guys don't like each other, although they seem to be kindred spirits in so many different ways. Uh, Will a Trump announcement scare DeSantis off or will will that motivate him to, to make his own commitment? I think that, you know, I don't think it's going to scare him off. I think he's going to try to use this to say, look at the base that I have in Florida. Florida was already mine before you came here. Uh, and I've been working to build Florida into this kind of uh, Republican bastion that will continue to back me. And DeSantis himself was on tour in and around the United States to try and prop up uh, Republicans candidates. Some of them Donald Trump did not uh, endorse, but that kind of falls in line with this is a Republican Party that is not unified. There is a split here. Some are behind Donald Trump. Some are behind the kind of old school conservatives and some are kind of behind that mix that exists. And I think DeSantis will try to use any kind of Republican advantage that occurs tonight or whenever decisions are made when it comes to runoff elections to his own advantage to say, look, Donald Trump has not been in power for two years. Therefore, Donald Trump doesn't need to be on the ticket because we as a Republican Party can move forward without him or without his ability to kind of pick candidates. I think that this is going to set up for a big fight. We will likely see the kind of fists come out between DeSantis and Trump. But I don't think this is going to back Ron DeSantis down by any means. Very quickly, Reggie, on the other side of the fence here, if the Republicans do have a good night, as some people are suggesting, uh, what does that do to Joe Biden and, and his possible run at a second term? He's he's not committed one way or another, although the other week, as you reported, he was hinting that, yeah, we, we, we might just do this. But he hasn't said yes or no. 
Uh, if if it doesn't go well tonight for the Democrats, does that alter his decision or influence? I mean, his look, decision? He, he he said last night outside of the White House that he doesn't think that they're going to win the House, but there's a chance they win the Senate. And I think he may take that as a win. I think we have to wait to see, too, what Trump does. If Trump decides to run, does Joe Biden want to make this a rematch? Again, there's lukewarmness within the Democratic Party saying this is not the candidate that we need to move forward. Uh, at the end of the day, the Democrats are split as to whether they want Joe Biden as president again for a second term. They haven't really had anybody that they're bringing up to the top. So this is going to be the Democrats trying to go through their drawers and figure out what they can do now to line things up. But they're running out of time to do it. Uh, very, very important night in U.S. politics and, of course, in global politics as a result. And we'll be watching, uh, as always, for your reporting on Global National. Thanks for this, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington's uh, reporter, of course, uh, for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. And uh, this is something, I, as the experts are saying, is going to go on for some time. It's going to go well into the night. Uh, to try to determine exactly who's going to control those two houses of government south of the border. And the implications are incredibly uh, large and, and very, very significant. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.